Let me read the text and then we'll pray and we'll get started with our Bible study. The text is Acts 3, 11 through 19. Acts 3, 11 through 19. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. While he, now he here is the guy who was just healed, the lame man. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the Prince of Peace, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, just for a heads up, that last phrase, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, many translations put that one into verse 20, as does my Greek. I'm going to push that into verse 20 and deal with it later. I want to deal with the hope of the restoration of Israel and what all that means. But I have it here because the New American Standard includes it in this section. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a day to love and serve you and to praise you and to open up your word. Thank you for caring for us, providing for us more than we even know. Thank you for your providential oversight over all of history. And we pray that we could learn from this event that's included in Acts. Help us to open our hearts and minds by your grace to believe what you've said in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'll start back with verse 11. It says, While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. Now, there's several things we're going to talk about here. First of all, it says he was clinging to Peter and John. As you read this entire narrative that goes well into chapter 4, you'll see that the healed lame man is always present. So there he is. Okay, 
And this becomes a problem for the Jewish leadership. There is evidence with him standing there that everybody knows was lame from birth, that he's standing there, and he is evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And so Peter will indict them for having handed Jesus over to the Roman authorities when Pilate wanted to release him. But they'd hear nothing of it. They wanted Jesus dead. And so think about that a little bit. Here, God heals. God raises the dead. And they just looked at at all of that as a threat to their political power. How many of you know that political power sometimes blinds people and causes them to embrace really dumb things? Yeah, how about global warming? We're keep, we, they keep telling us, well, we're freezing to death every winter because of global warming. Yeah. I'm, there's no evidence against it. Well, that's another topic. I have spoken on that topic. So the man stands there clinging to Peter as evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. Going forward, by the way, if, you, if you're taking notes, Acts 4.10. Let me give you a little preview. Acts 4.10. Let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Notice all the way in chapter 4, there he stands. Healed. Which is an unbelievable miracle because they'd seen him there at the temple gate begging for most of their lives, depending how old they were and how old he was. But he was... They're lame from birth, now healed. So he stands as a witness to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter is going to make this clear. It says all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon. I won't get into a lot, but it was a series of columns that were covered And this is where various things happened. The temple becomes a center point for the early church where they met together, where they prayed, and where they preached the gospel to their Jewish brethren. Notice here I've highlighted on my slide in blue, amazement. This is a word translated from the Greek that's used in Luke-Acts to signify the response to a mighty work of God. Do you want to read some verses? Okay. Uh, Dan, do you want to read Luke 4, 35 and 36? And Norm, Luke 5, 9. Luke 4, 35 and 36. There's the mic. Okay, Luke... Luke 4, 34, 35, and 36. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other? 
Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Amen. So amazement was a response to a mighty work of God. Norm, Luke 5, 9. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. <laughs> yeah, that was Peter in the boat with Jesus. He was seized with amazement. Now, let me talk about interpreting narrative. One of the ways that you understand what's emphasized in a section of narrative is by repeated words that appear at key times in the narrative. So amazement is, is a, such a word. It shows up regularly, and it clues the reader into the fact that this is a mighty work of God, and it's significant in the history of salvation. That's what is being said, and also in the context of Messiah come upon the scene of history. As I said to you last week, one of the goals of this class on Acts, I've already preached through Luke, I'm teaching through Acts, that was some years ago when I did Luke, is that we learn how to read. This doesn't mean we can't read, but how to read narrative and understand the author's meaning. We want to be good readers. I had one teacher at seminary, a good one, who said the best hermeneutic book you can get is Mortimer Adler's book, How to Read a Book. If you learn how to read a book, you can learn how to read the Bible. The Bible's not some secret book. It's not some encoded religious secret that can be decoded if you have the right ring that you got out of a cereal box. <laughs> That's not how it works. It means what it says. But that doesn't stop people. I'm looking ahead at some articles, right? There are two books out right now that claim to reveal secrets in the Bible that we couldn't know by just reading the Bible. Okay, so that just shows you how far we've fallen. So now we've got a secret religion, not a revealed religion. So I'm going to do some writing on that topic. And so this was public. The man who was healed was public. The teaching was public. The preaching was public. And the meaning is for us to all know. It says also in Luke 24, 41, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, there's our word. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? Here was Jesus again. Acts 2.12, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? It means that messianic salvation has come on the scene of history. Let's move forward. Acts 3.12, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, 
Men of Israel, why are you amazed? There's our word, okay? At this, or why do you gaze at us as if by our power or piety we had made him walk? So here we see that Peter wants the amazement to point people to Christ, not to them. Now I'm going to show you that false teachers did just the opposite. And you can see today false teachers doing just the opposite. The real issue is, was Christ preached? In the 80s, I talked to some people that had gone to miracle meetings by whoever was the miracle worker at the time, <laughs> Benny Hinn or whatever. And they came back, and there was all this excitement, and people, you know, lines of people to get into these meetings. And I asked the question, was Christ preached? And they'd think for a while, I don't think so. Okay, so you're doing an amazing wonder, and what is the meaning? I'm a great man of piety. What does Peter say? Why are you looking at us as if it were by our power or piety? He preached Christ. And so the means of discernment, and we've taught on that here in Sunday school, is the confession of Jesus Christ. The confession of Jesus Christ. That's how we discern spirits. Now this is repeated. You want to turn to this. I'll read it because it's quite a few verses. Turn to Acts 14, starting with verse 8. Remember last week I said Luke uses reviews and previews? Well, it turns out Acts 3.12 is a preview of something in Acts 14. In Acts 3.12, it's Peter, and Acts 14 is Paul. But we have a similar idea where God does a mighty work, and then the people think there's some great big power or piety in the preacher. And Peter deflects that idea, and so does Paul. Let me read it to you. Acts 14, starting with verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Now, what does that remind you of? Acts 3, right? The lame man who was just healed. Now we have another lame man. So we have a narrative repetition to make a point. So we'll see the same themes again. So reader, pay attention. If you're reading a mystery novel, you'd pay attention because it would be it might be a clue. So the lame man from his mother's womb is a repeat of the healing in Acts 3. Now let's see what else repeats itself. Acts 14 and verse 9. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke who when he had fixed his gaze on him, remember what Peter said to the guy at the gate beautiful? Look at me. A repeated idea. Had seen that he had faith to be made well. Now we're going to see here in Acts that the man had faith that came from Jesus. Christ is both the author and the object of faith. Verse 10, and said with a loud voice, this was Paul who says this, 
stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up. Where have you seen leaped before? Acts 3. You paid attention, right? And he began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Laconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. So they interpret the miracle according to their pagan worldview, their polytheistic worldview. And they begin calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, if this, something like this happened nowadays, they'd take up an offering. Here's your chance to be rich and famous. But this is not what happens. Verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed into the crowd. What did it mean in the Jewish scriptures when they tore their robes? Anybody know? Yeah, this would be just anguish and disgust and a horrible... It would show everybody, this guy's really upset. This is really bad. It wasn't that easy. You couldn't go down to Kohl's with your 30% off and get a new one. <laughs> oh, do you do that too? That's what we do. <laughs> Verse 15, and saying, man, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these things. Notice that word turn. Keep that in your mind. From these things to a living God. That's the definition of repentance. Who made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So Paul refused to accept their assessment that he was one of the gods that came down to earth, tore his robe, and told them to repent of their paganism. Now, if you want to turn with me, turn to Acts 8, 9 through 11, and we'll see what the pagans did when given the same idea or something similar or what they wanted to do. This is about Simon Magus. Also in Acts, so the apostles, when they're given an opportunity to glorify themselves, refuse to, but they point people to Christ. What do the pagans do? Acts 8, 9 through 11. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city, astonishing the people of Samaria. What was his claim? Claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. I kid you not that I have seen advertisement for people in the Apostles and Prophets movement who make the same claims as this Simon Magus. Well, I'm the great power of God. There's other incidents like this in Acts. There was the guy who didn't give God the glory, and he died and worms ate him. Remember that? 
So the apostles point to Christ, not to themselves, and they deflect any kind of adulation that may come because of something that God did. The false teachers eat it up. Now, Simon Magus wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit in order to add that to his attention-getting repertoire. Peter said, this isn't our power or piety that made him walk. Verse 13, then he points to Israel's history. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. Now, in the Bible, the patriarchs are hugely important. The promises that you find later in the Bible begin with the promise that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would make from them a great nation, that ultimately a, a ruler would arise from them, which we know to be Messiah. And this is supposed to get our attention that this is God intervening in Israel's history as he has in the past, reminding them of the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I'll just read these, but if you, if you want to turn to Exodus 3, 5, and 6, it's the burning bush. Exodus 3, 5, and 6. Again, a key moment in Israel's history. God was about to intervene to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage according to the promise that had been given to Abraham earlier in Genesis. And it says here to Moses, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Verse 6, and he said also, this is right out of the burning bush, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. What does it mean that Peter is referencing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That God is keeping his promises and that he has come into history to save a people like he did at the burning bush when Moses was called. This is significant. We need to believe it. Later in Romans 11, when we see God's future plan for Israel, which I'll talk about in a few weeks when I'm back in the Acts, the reference is the promises made to the patriarchs. God keeps his promises Brian, could you look up Luke twenty thirty seven? Read that to us once you do. We have another narrative link here. Luke twenty thirty seven. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Uh, amen. So there in Luke, we have a reference to this. And here we have it again in Acts. Wow. And this will lead into a reference to the ultimate restoration of all things. God 
keeps his promises, and particularly the ones given to the patriarchs. Now it says here that this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified his servant. That again is an allusion to the Old Testament. I brought with me printout from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and I was also looking at the Greek of Acts 3.13. And glorified is found in Acts 3.13 in the Greek, and servant, pious, is also found, the glorified servant. These same exact words are used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, of Isaiah 52.13. Isaiah 52.13. There it says, Behold and consider the pious servant, my servant, and he will be, this is lift high and glorified, doxadzo, and exceedingly multiplied. So we have here, when it says glorified his servant, an allusion to Isaiah 52.13. The NASB says, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. The glorified servant is part of the promise given to Israel in Isaiah 52, 13. And look at what happens. Whom you delivered over and denied. Ouch. I think Peter forgot to go to Rick Warren's seminar and how to uh, make your audience warm up to you and be comfortable. This is a stinging rebuke that would maximize the sense of guilt and shame. But the goal of it isn't just to leave them feeling guilty, but for them to repent. And we'll see that. You know, I absolutely love this. I love reading. It's it's all about reading. They denied whom God glorified. So this is an indictment of the Jewish leadership. In Luke 23, 13 to 25, I have some more separate notes here. For the sake of time, I'll read it myself. We see the same idea. See, Luke acts... It's amazing because you have reviews that go all the way back in the Old Testament to Exodus and Isaiah, and you have reviews that go back into Luke, and you have previews to later in Acts, and you have previews all the way to the eschatological kingdom. And it's all integrated into a beautiful narrative that is so magnificent in Luke-Acts that nobody could figure it out. It had to have been a work of the Holy Spirit. I wish I could adequately explain this to you. It is so exciting. Why would you go study something else? Plus, it's another part of the Bible. Luke 23, 13, let's see this. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people, that is, the Jewish leadership, 
and said to them, you, there's that you again, brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, Luke 23, 14, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. So it's clear that Pilate found Jesus innocent. Verse 16, therefore I will punish him and release him. But they cried out all together, saying, away with this man, release for us Barabbas. Parenthetically, verse 19, he is the one who had been thrown into prison for insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, verse 20, verse 21, but they kept on calling out, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them on the the, the third time, verse 22, why, what evil has this man done? I found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Notice he's innocent, but I'm going to punish him just a little bit because that's what we do. We beat people. (laughs) Verse 23. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. Verse 35. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murdered, but delivered Jesus to their will. Now we have here another grammatical link, if you read it in the Greek. It says here, delivered, paradidomi, paradidomi, gave over to their will, uh, thelo, which is uh, their uh, to will, or, or thelema, the, the will. So they, he surrendered Jesus to their will. Not to justice, but to their will. Delivered over, delivered over. There's that word, paradidomai. My dear friends, the facts can't be any more clear. Jesus Christ came into this world, the Holy One of Israel, He came to fulfill promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He lived a sinless life. He was rejected by his own people as predicted in Isaiah. Let me read that to you, Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. He was rejected, delivered over in a gross act of injustice, but according to Peter's sermon in Acts 2, according to the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God. God sent his innocent son to be rejected by men in keeping with Scripture and raised him from the dead to demonstrate that he's who he claims to be, which would be the sinless Savior. Have you repented and turned to Christ? Verse 14, 
of Acts 3. I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible here because it had this word denied. I think that's the right translation of that word. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murderer given to you. I just read that to you. Denied the Holy Righteous One, give us a murderer. I was contemplating the implications of this and thinking about some of the stuff that I see on the news concerning America and her leaders. One of the things I jotted in my notes, just contemplating this, they asked for a murderer and they became murderers. My friends, we got to be careful what we approve because we become what we approve. And as our once great nation approves murder, we become murderers. It's sobering, is it not? And if you're not willing to go along with being a murderer, then you're ridiculed and mocked by people running for office. Absolutely. The one thing you can't be is a Christian. Let me quote Dr. Polhill from the New American Commentary on this verse 14. Polhill says, one should not miss the irony in verse 14. The Jerusalemites requested that a murderer be released to them, for they themselves were murderers. They killed the author of life, verse 15. I'll talk about that in a moment. But the seeming defeat of the cross ended in victory. God raised him from the dead. Peter and John were themselves witnesses to the reality of this resurrection. The guilt of the Jerusalem Jews was well established. The guilt was, however, not so much in their delivering God's chosen one to death as their denial of Jesus. Peter continued to emphasize this in the remainder of his sermon. God sent Christ to bless them, the sons of the covenant, but they disowned him. Give us a murderer. We don't want the prince of life. We prefer a murderer any day. You want to know why wicked leadership comes to the forefront? It's this sort of thing. It's really sad. It says in Luke 12, 8 and 9, if you want to jot this down, I'm commenting on the term denied here in Acts 3, 14. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So we've got to decide. Do we care what happens in eternity? Or do we want to be popular now? Do you think that it's worth it to buy temporary popularity by going along with the pagan world around us? Or should we stand up for the gospel and take the rejection of the world but be confessed before the angels of God? That's our choice. Verse 15. Biting irony here. I use the ESV. Again, I'm not jumping around trying to read things into the Bible. I start with the Greek, and if there's a word in there 
that I think is used in a literary sense of a literary device like here, which would be irony, I want that to come out in the English translation, and it does in the ESV. I wanted the word author. Yeah, you could say prince of life or originator of life or whatever, but author is the term I was looking for, and I found the ESV to do that. And you killed the author of life. There's your irony. You killed the author of life. But, or whom God raised from the dead to this were witnesses. They weren't able to erase Jesus from the scene of history. He was raised on the third day. Every one of the sermons, uh, everyone in the book of Acts mentions the resurrection of Christ. Everyone. When I was a brand new Christian in 1971, I took a class from Reverend John Phillips at North Central Bible College. And one of the things he required us to do is to study each one of the sermons in the book of Acts and create you know, kind of a brief outline and see what themes are repeated. And that was really good for me as a new Christian because I found that every sermon in the book of Acts was about the resurrection of Christ. This is the sign that God has given. And if we reject that sign because we don't want to listen to it, there are lesser signs like the healing of the lame man, but the preaching pointed them to the resurrected Christ. We won't listen. Our hearts will become hard. Our minds will become dim and dark and will serve wickedness and lies rather than the author of life. The contrast here is between the evil they did and the saving good God did. The term for author that's used in the Greek is also found in Hebrews 12 too. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, says in Hebrews 12 too, who for the joy said before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Wow, Psalm 110 verse 1 is alluded to. Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus is the author of life. You killed, God raised. You wanted a murderer, you became murderers. But God didn't let that be the final say. He raised Jesus from the dead. Do you think we ought to preach on that? I can't imagine why we wouldn't. Now, verse 16. Peter, continuing his message on the occasion of the healing of the lame man. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. Remember the man standing there as a sign from God? And the faith which comes through him, Jesus, has given him, the man, this perfect health in the presence of you all. So they're witnesses of a healing. Here we see a chiastic structure. Faith, name, name, faith. I didn't make a slide on that. I think that was a simple enough one. We can get it in our mind. But I did go into red and blue here. Red would be the first idea. Name, name would be repeated. 
A, B, B1, A1. That's your chiasm. Dr. Peterson, in his pillar commentary on the book of Acts, says this, as Messiah, Jesus fulfilled the role of the suffering servant and became the means, says Peterson, by which God consummated his covenant promises to the patriarchs of Israel. Moreover, he is the author of life who has made resurrection life possible for all who trust in him. Dr. Peterson continues, since calling on the name of the Lord was a distinguishing mark of Israel in the ancient world, it was extremely provocative for the apostles to claim that Jesus was the one on whom to call for salvation. It was an implicit claim to divinity, which could not be ignored by pious monotheistic Jews. What does Paul say in Romans 10? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice here faith in his name. Notice faith the second time, which comes through him. I hadn't contemplated this as a verse to prove that saving faith is a gift from God, but here it is. Now I'm going to add that to my repertoire. Faith comes from God. Faith is commanded by God, and faith comes from God. Some will think about that and say, well, it can't be true. Faith has to be generated in the heart of man by the act of human will or things just aren't right. But God uses means and the command to believe is the means he uses to bring the gift of faith to his own elect people. Absolutely. If you have saving faith, I'm telling you right now, it came from God. You can't just look out there and say, well, I'm more pious than everybody else. I'm a more noble-minded person. You and I both know that it's certainly not true for me. No, God is a merciful God. So Jesus is both the object and the source of saving faith. Verse 17 and 18. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. So, let me stop right there. So in spite of the stinging rebuke, you, 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 and it was all bad, Peter is saying right here by rehearsing something that we'll see in Numbers 15 that it's not hopeless. You did grave evil because you asked for Barabbas. You rejected the Holy One. You asked for him to be crucified, and you denied him, even though he did his mighty work of healing. It's not hopeless, because you haven't yet committed the unpardonable sin. The one who acts in ignorance still has the opportunity for forgiveness and repentance. We'll see that in a bit in Numbers 15. Just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all his prophets 
that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Let's all turn together to Numbers 15. We'll begin with verse 27. Some of you have heard this before, maybe most of you, but it bears repeating because this idea stands behind a lot of things that you find in the New Testament, especially things that people find confusing. The warning against apostasy in Hebrews is based on the categories you find in Numbers 15. Okay, starting with verse 27. Also, if one person sins unintentionally, there's our reference that you find in Acts 3.17, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. That's verse 28. Let me stop right there. This doesn't mean that sinners aren't responsible for their own sin. It doesn't mean that. It means that the sinner admits that sin is sin. The sinner admits that God is righteous. The sinner admits that he needs atonement. The sinner admits that he needs forgiveness. The intentional sin or the deliberate sin is to say, God's not going to tell me what to do. I'm right, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it again, and I don't need any atonement. How many of you know that's bad? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very bad. All right, let's, let's read on. Verse 29, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, meaning the claim that he knows better than God. That's what intentional would be. Unintentional is admitting that God's right, but I fell into sin. For him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them. But, verse 30, the person who does anything defiantly, see the difference? Defiantly. Whether he is native or alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. Here is our New Testament idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. The one who claims he needs no day of atonement gets no day of atonement. They should put the fear of God in us, shouldn't it? Do we need Jesus' blood to wash away our sins? Yes, amen. What will wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What will make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My dear brothers and sisters, we're not those who are defiant, but those who persevere to the saving of the soul. That's what it says in Hebrews, we believe better things concerning you. 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul says about himself, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, that is a reference to Numbers 15.30. This is how we read. A persecutor, a violent aggressor, 
Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. In his case, he found mercy. Even the one who apparently is blasphemed can be saved if they'll admit that they've sinned against a holy God. I was a blasphemer. God saved me. Jesus in Luke 23, 34 says here, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Here again, repeating or saying what Peter later repeated. Acts 13, 27. Acts 13, 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. I'm promising you that as we go through the book of Acts, many times it's just flat out stunning. It really is. And it'll convict us. And it'll give us hope and joy that God gave us mercy so that we don't become ungrateful in our hearts. Good, we got five minutes left for the last slide. Here is a therefore that is a logical response. It says literally in the Greek, change your mind then. Therefore, repent and turn back. Now these are synonymous terms. It's just crazy. Somebody says, well, they didn't preach repentance in the book of Acts or Paul didn't preach it or whatever. It's insane. Turn back is found all the way through Acts. All the way to the end, chapter 28. There's never any time repentance isn't taught. See, many people falsely assume that if God commands something, we have the human ability to do it without any special work of grace. But that's not what it says. God gives grace to the humble. The command to repent is designed to humble us so that we do find grace and mercy. And we are forgiven. And we don't become those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but those who repent and live. It says, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. I'll look at that term here in a bit. I didn't use the end of the verse because we're going to, uh, as some translations do, connect that to the beginning of verse 20 because it talks about the future of Israel. Now this, again, reminds us of an earlier preview. Luke 1, 16 and 17. This is the angel, I believe. The angel said this. Luke 1, 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Verse 17. And as he will go as a forerunner before him, John the Baptist that is, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedience to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this turn back, this turn back, same word in the Greek found in Luke 1, 
in Acts 13. I'm going to quote Dr. Peterson again in his commentary on Acts. Quote, as in 2.38, remember Acts 2.38, Peter preached repentance. And as in Acts 2.38, says Peterson, repentance is demanded on the basis of what is proclaimed about Jesus. The related verb, epistrephine, to turn or return, is extensively used by Luke. Luke 116, 239, 855, 1740. Did you get that? 1731, 2232, Acts 935, on and on, turn back. That's repent. Is added here and in 2620 to indicate that genuine repentance involves a radical reorientation of life, turning back to God to seek reconciliation and express a new obedience. Peterson continues, informed belief is an essential aspect of repentance. There can be now no genuine turning to God without acknowledging the centrality of Jesus to God's purpose as proclaimed in Peter's message. Sins wiped out, as mentioned again, Revelation 3, 5, where it talks about the horrible possibility of the name being wiped out of the book of life. It means to erase or to wipe out. If you turn, repent and turn to God, your sins will be wiped out. Which would you rather have? Your sins wiped out or your name wiped out of the book of life? I'll take the sins wiped out. How about you? Amen. Amen. I love how the Bible makes things very clear and very graphic. Return is a synonym for repentance. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, may we be those who persevere in the faith faith that comes from you so that our names would be found ultimately in your book of life. Don't take our names out of there as Moses asked when he was interceding. And may we have grace to serve you day by day. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that we can hear and see these things from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Well, thank you.